John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1. I invite you to join us there and follow along as we seek the Lord together, to seek to see Him as John wants us to see Him. Last Lord's Day, we finished the prologue, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, where John, who was writing that we might believe, we who are professing Christians might believe, is there not room for our belief to grow deeper and richer? Of course there is. That's John's expectation. Not that we just have a surface level belief in Christ, but that we have come to, to see Christ for all that He is in His infinite fullness and His greatness as we saw last week. Christ is greater than anything and everything you could compare Him to. That we would believe that in every circumstance of our life. And that we would live upon that truth when those circumstances of life arise that we didn't expect. Now God expected them, God is sovereign over them. But that we would live upon not our wisdom, not the world's wisdom, not the counsel of our family and friends, but live upon what we know about Christ. He is everything, He is all. And out of that we would grow to savor Him more and more and more. Oh, the richness. And John has been writing in this prologue because that's who Christ is to him. We saw that in the book of Revelation exiled on the Isle of Patmos in his circumstances. What was everything to him? Christ. He had nothing else, yet Christ was all. Christ was sufficient. And he writes these things that you and I might believe like he does, that we might love Christ and see him. And so he writes in the prologue, when he writes about Christ, he's introducing us. This is who I want you to think of, the pre-existent one, one with the Father, yet distinct from the Father. He is God. He is life, the creator. He is light. In him is no darkness at all. This is who Christ is. The one who came in the flesh. Now his own people, the world rejected him, but he came in the flesh. And to those who did receive him, he became the right to become children of God. Well, how in the world did we go from rejecting him and loving the darkness to receiving him and Hating the darkness, it was the work of God's grace. It was the work of the Spirit and regeneration. This is Christ, the Creator, recreating the soul, giving us a heart for Him. John says in these first 18 verses, this is who Christ is. And this is who I'm going to explore with you, the fullness of Christ. And so in the first 18 verses, he's just setting the stage. Now this morning we turn to verses 19 through 28 where now John actually begins his gospel of the public ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's read together John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The title of the message this morning is simply The Questioning of John and the Exaltation of Christ. The Questioning of John and the Exaltation of Christ. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you once again this morning. This is your word inspired by you through your spirit to the Apostle John, who loved Christ, who knew Christ more intimately than anybody. And Father, what a privilege you've given us to hear from this dear brother, to hear all that he knew and loved about Jesus Christ. What a privilege. And what a tragedy it would be, Father, for it to fall on deaf ears. We come to you this morning praying for grace, praying for the work of your Spirit upon our hearts. The same Spirit that worked in the Apostle John's heart to take out a heart of stone and rebellion and wickedness and put in a a heart of love for Jesus. Would you send your Spirit to do that same in our hearts? And where that has taken place, Father, would you continue the work of the Spirit in our lives to, to remind us, to teach us, to deepen our understanding of Christ? Not just the historical figure, but the fullness of God. The fullness of all that you are. That we might believe, really believe. Not just with our lips, give lip service to Jesus, but believe. And that Christ would be all. And we would savor him above anything else the world has to offer. Lord, these are lofty requests. They are centered upon your son, and we know you love your son. Lord, we want you to help us love him as much as you do. We pray that you would take the stoniest of hearts this morning, and you would plow it. You would soften the fallow ground as the seeds of John 1, 19 to 28 are laid into our souls and bear much fruit for the glory of Christ. Help us this day to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The questioning of John and the exaltation of Christ. This passage we just read, verses 19 through 28, begins a fascinating week of Jesus' public ministry. It's rare in the Gospels for the Gospel writers to string a series of days together. But that's exactly what John does here. In fact, over the course of the next few verses, we're going to see John lays out for us the first seven days of Jesus' ministry, one after the other. We'll be able to follow chronologically John's own wording, his own timetable. This happened, and then the next day this, and then the next day this, and then the next day, and then three days later this. We can follow. He's laying out the first seven days of Jesus' life and ministry. And the first one that we come to today focuses upon John the Baptist and his witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 29, then you'll notice it goes on to say, and then the next day. 
Then you just get down to verse 35. It's going to say again, and the next day, verse 43, the next day. And then you get into chapter 2, and it's going to fast forward like three days later. He's giving us the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. And this is not an accident. This is not coincidence. What happened in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God. How does John begin John's gospel chapter 1? In the beginning was the word. There's an absolute allusion to Genesis there. John is connecting the life and ministry of Jesus with the eternal plans and purposes that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Well, what happens after in the beginning God in Genesis chapter 1? You have what? Seven straight days of creation. John is alluding to that here. John is intentionally giving us seven full days of stories. He's connecting Jesus with everything in the Old Testament. He's connecting the fullness of who Jesus is with everything God was doing in Genesis chapter 1. What God is doing in Genesis 1 really was all about Christ. It's all about Him. He's connecting His gospel with Genesis. So whereas Genesis begins with God's work of creation over the course of seven days, now John begins his gospel with the work of God in recreation through the life of Jesus Christ. The recreation of a soul. The recreation of just as God spoke life into darkness, let there be life. Now the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ comes and speaks life into the darkness of a dead soul that doesn't love Jesus. Now Jesus comes onto the scene and now it's changed as, as radical as God speaking into the darkness and bringing life. Now the public ministry of Jesus and the life that he's bringing to his people. You cannot rush through that. You cannot underestimate what these next seven days are all about and how John is using them to help us to understand more fully the majesty, the magnitude of this person, Jesus Christ. His public ministry is life, death, and resurrection. The story of Jesus is a story of recreation. The recreation of a soul unto God. Well, on this first day in the story, we encounter John the Baptist, who is confronted by a group of Jews who've come to question him. And we understand why he's being questioned. John has garnered, again, this is John the Baptist. Every time John, the author of John, talks about John, he's always talking about John the Baptist. John the Apostle never talks about himself as part of his humility. It's all about Christ. And so here he's talking about John the Baptist, who has garnered a lot of attention because of his preaching ministry, because of his, uh, uh, his baptismal ministry. And so these people are, are people who are coming from far away to see John. Matthew's Gospel says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about uh, uh, about uh, the Jordan were going to him. People were flooding to John the Baptist. Masses of people were hearing about him. They wanted to go see what all the fuss was about. So it makes sense that the authorities get word of this and naturally they want to know, who are you? And by what authority are you doing this? And those are the two questions they ask him in this text. And that's how we're going to look at this text together. I don't think of these as sermon points because they're not. They're more just 
to help us kind of break down the text. We're going to look at the text this morning in light of those two questions they're asking. Number one, who are you? What's your identity? And then number two, what's your authority? That, that's kind of the breakdown of the text. If you want a preaching point for the text, it's this. All of life is about the exaltation of Christ. One point, that's what the message is about. This is what John epitomizes for us. All of life, everything in life, is a, for, the, for the believer, is about bearing witness to the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Well, to get to that, let's look at the text in those two points. Number one, the question regarding John's identity, all right? So verse 19 says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, let's stop there for just a minute. The Jews, you see that, that category there, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. That category, it is used elsewhere in the Gospels, but rarely. If my memory serves, I think it was three times in the other Gospels. The other Gospel writers use that term. But John uses that term, the Jews, some 70 times. So, again, we need to understand, what does John mean when he talks about the Jews? Now, on some occasions, when he talks about the Jews, he does mean it in a positive light. For instance, in chapter 4, Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. That's a positive thing. And that makes sense. Christ comes from the line of the Jews. But most times, and this is what we need to grasp, most times when John is talking about the Jews, overwhelmingly he's speaking in negative terms. In John's gospel, the Jews most commonly describes those people who are hostile to Jesus. Those people who are antagonistic to Jesus, especially the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. Now, in this particular text, if you look down to verse 24, we know specifically which religious leaders these are. It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees have sent these delegates to come, and they want to know what's going on with this John the Baptist. What's going on? Who are you, and where do you get this authority from. And we're going to see all throughout John's gospel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, all of these Jewish people are hostile to Christ. All of them. They are opposed to Jesus from the get-go. Now, early on, they're going to give him lip service, but their hearts are exposed. They're opposed to him. So, this group comes in, sent in by the Pharisees, and they have a question for him. We read it there in verse 19. Who are you? They want to know who the, his identity. They're intrigued. They're wondering. Man, you've, everyone's coming from so far away. And probably they have some suspicions. They may even wonder, is he associated with the Messianic age? And John's response it's not what you expect. If someone comes up to you and says, who are you? What are you going to say? You're going to give them your name, aren't you? Hi. <laughs> Hi, and then you'll probably give them a name. Right? Isn't that how we tend to do? That's not how John responds. Rather than telling them who he is, he tells them who he's not. It's certainly not a normal way of making introduction but John, knowing that they're wondering his 
role, his place? Is there any connection with the promises of God in the Old Testament? Are you the Messiah? Knowing that this is in their mind, he says very clearly, verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. You've you got to pick up on the, the grammar there. There's intentionality here. This is, he is being as clear as he possibly can be. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed what? I am not the Christ. In that, the way he framed that, he confessed, did not, convi- did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. There's pain in John. The thought that anybody might entertain the possibility that he's the Christ did not settle well with John. And so unequivocally, he wanted to make clear he is not the Christ. Now the word Christ there is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title, the messianic title of the one who will be sent from God to deliver his people from their sins. All right, that's what the title Christ means. And we know that Jesus is the Christ. And John knows that. And he wants to be as clear as crystal. I am not the Christ. You see, they come asking, who are you? But right here, we get a glimpse into John's heart, his value system, what's most important to him. His life was not about himself. So much so that when it's asked, who are you? He turns attention to Christ. That's exactly what we're going to see in chapter 3, verse 30, where John says, He, that's Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. Somehow John knew while they were there, he knew what information they were looking for. They didn't ask him, are you the Christ? They said, are you, or who are you? But he knew what they wanted to know. And so he made it very clear. I am not the deliverer. I'm not the promised one from God. Well, if he wasn't the Christ, maybe you're some other prophet. So hang on to what we just saw and look at verse 21. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now that seems kind of random, doesn't it? Why would they, I mean, Old Testament's full of names. Why would they pick out Elijah? Well, because they knew their Bible. These were the Pharisees. They were religious. They knew their Bibles. And they knew Malachi chapter 4, where God said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord's coming. And he, that's Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of, of utter destruction. So they knew, Scripture has prophesied, the Messiah, the Christ is coming, but before he comes, God's going to send Elijah. And, you know, in their mind, they knew the story of Elijah. Elijah didn't die. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. And the Lord says he's going to send Elijah back to prepare the way for the Lord. So the priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, they were all looking for Elijah. They were looking for physically Elijah to come. So their question's not crazy. 
when they ask, are you Elijah? Because we're expecting him. We were told by God that Elijah's going to come before the Messiah comes. And for that matter, I mean, everything about John kind of reeked of Elijah. In Elijah's ministry, we're told in 2 Kings, he wore garments of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. That's kind of how John dressed. John, in Matthew chapter 3, we're told, wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. You can't miss the parallel there. I mean, you understand why they, well, maybe this is Elijah. Elijah's ministry was to seek repentance from Israel. That's what John's doing here, too, turning the hearts of the people away from the world, away from their sins to the Lord. His ministry is one of repentance. It makes sense for them to think he is Elijah. But how does he respond? Verse 21, he said, I am not. That's the right answer. He's not Elijah. Not in the person anyway. He's John. He is not Elijah reincarnated. But he is the one God was prophesying about in Malachi. He is the one. God's prophecy was not that he was going to send physical Elijah back. He's going to spend an Elijah-like figure back. And the spirit of Elijah. And that's who John the Baptist is. John was that Elijah-like figure. And in fact, the announcement of John's birth kind of informs that. The angel told Zechariah, John's father, this in Luke 1. He will turn, speaking of John the Baptist, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There is no doubt John the Baptist is the Elijah figure that God prophesied in Malachi would come before the Messiah arrived. But their question is, are you Elijah? So he says, no. No, he's not Elijah. But he has come and been sent in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that is in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. His ministry is very similar to that of Elijah's, which was a ministry of repentance. And that too is John the Baptist's ministry. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. So they asked once more, Are you the prophet? The prophet. Who? Who is the prophet they're talking about? Well, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. The prophet was Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses promises, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, a Moses-like prophet from among you, and to him you shall listen. And then Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, Moses reports the words of the Lord himself, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So there's a prophecy that God is going to send a prophet in the likeness of Moses. Just as God, as Moses went up to Mount Sinai, was face to face with God, received God's word, brought it down to his people, there's going to be another prophet, a Moses-like prophet, who will 
stand before the face of God to receive God's word and declare God to his people. Many centuries later, John the Baptist is on the scene. They're still awaiting that Moses-like prophet. And given John's reputation and what people are seeing, it makes sense why they'd ask, are you the prophet, the Moses-like one? And how does he simply answer there in verse 21? He answered, no. Parenthetically, who is the Moses-like prophet? It's Christ. John has already hinted at that. Go back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You remember the Greek there, the Word was face to face with God. Just as Moses, by grace, was given atop Mount Sinai the opportunity to, for a few moments, receive the law of God, stand face to face with God, he came down off the mountain with his face blazing in glory. This Moses-like picture of another prophet is Christ who dwells face to face with the Almighty God. And He brings not the Word of God from Mount Sinai. He is the Word sent from God from heaven to us. Do you see how Christ is the prophet that Moses was talking about? Well, by this time the Jews are exasperated. I mean, we just want an answer. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Fine. Are you Elijah? No. Are you Moses? No. They're out of ideas. <laughs> They're finding their questions getting them nowhere. They can't go back to their delegates, or they are the delegates. They can't go back to, to the Pharisees without answers. So they said to him in verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You kind of get the idea. I mean, this, things are tense with this John the Baptist figure. He's caused such a ruckus. They can't go back without an answer. They've been sent to get answers because something is happening here and it's unsettling. And you kind of get a feel that things are happening. Their guesses have been lofty, but they've been wrong. So instead of just denying who we think you might be, no more telling us who you're not, who are you? And John the Baptist is glad to answer. Verse 23, you want to know who I am? He tells them, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Who are you? You tell us. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And he says to them, I'm a voice. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. You see what he's doing there? He's turning all attention away from, who am I? Don't worry about me. I'm a voice. That's all I am. Don't worry about me. I'm a voice 
I was telling you about the one you need to be concerned about. The one whose identity you most need to know. I'm not the Christ. I'm not honorable Elijah. I'm not the long-anticipated Moses-like prophet. You don't know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a voice. That's, that's all I am. Humility. The priests and Levites would have immediately understood the reference to Isaiah chapter 40. They would immediately have heard that text because they knew their Bibles. They would have known that verse well, and they would have understood his claim that on this particular day in their midst, he is declaring he is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. They would have understood that. Who is he? He's the voice who's making way making straight the way of the Lord. What does that even mean? Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, in Isaiah's context, he was speaking of Israel's return from captivity. He was calling for an improvement of the road system so that the people of God could get back home. It was very, very clear, a metaphorical, geographical type thing calling for the leveling of hills and valleys, a straightening of the curves, so that the covenant people of God can return home safely, quickly. But for John the Baptist, he's not calling about improvement of roads. What do you think he's talking about? Improvement of hearts. Improvement, a spiritual improvement, not a road system. A heart system. Just like for Israel to return home from captivity, they had to go through dry, rocky, curvy, hard ground, highs, lows. So too, the hearts of people have become dry and rocky and desert. There's pride hills that have to be leveled to make the way for the King, the Messiah who's come. Those things, if the hard ground of the heart remains, Jesus will not be received. The hard ground has to be plowed. The stony ground has to be torn apart. The ground has to be tilled. The, the curves of the heart going in all different directions have to be straightened to one route, one destination, one thing. The Messiah. And John the Baptist's role is to be that voice in the wilderness crying out. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. John the Baptist as the Messiah, the prophet of God, preparing the way from the Lord. He is crying out for the Word of God to do what only the Word of God can do. To soften hearts. To be ready to receive the Lord Jesus for who He is. And God has purposed Him to be for His glory from before the foundation of the world. This is John's answer to the question, who are you? He says, I'm a voice of God. 
Just like in your day, before a king goes out, there will be a herald who goes out and blows the trumpet and announces his presence. John the Baptist was that voice announcing the arrival of the Messiah. He, through his preaching ministry and preaching a message of God's holiness, of God's law, God's standard, right? We're going back to the prayer meeting for a moment. God's holiness, God's standard of righteousness, the drift of the human heart away from God to rebellion and wickedness and evil, and the need to repent for the return of the Lord is near. That message was the voice of God preparing the way so that when Jesus arrives, their hearts are eager and earnest. Thank you, Lord. He's here. He's everything. He's what I need. He's what I want. I forsake all else. I've been exposed. I've been seen. I've seen the holiness of God. I've seen myself in light of Him. And I turn to Christ and I cling to Him. That's what John the Baptist is the voice doing, preparing the way so that when Christ arrives, we must have Him. And He is all. Again, we are run up upon John the Baptist's humility. I'm not the Christ. I'm only a voice. And my voice is so that I don't want you looking at me. I'm a voice. Don't spend your time trying to see me or seek me out. I'm nothing but a voice. Look for Him. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Him. He's coming. He's here. That's who you need to find out who He is. That's who you need to see. That's who you need to investigate. That's who you need to savor and enjoy. My job is to prepare your heart to make straight. When He comes, there's no stumbling block. He's all, and you run to Him. One of the study Bibles I use says it rightly. The Pharisees completely missed the point. They wanted to know who John was. And John's whole purpose is he wanted them to know who Jesus was. Come to Life Church, what about us? Do you, like John, know who you are not? You will probably quickly answer that and say, well, of course, I know I'm not Jesus. I know I'm not the Christ. So let me take that a step further. Are you trying to be Christ or the Holy Spirit of Christ in somebody else's life? Are you trying to be someone you are not? Or are you, like John, pointing to the person who is the Christ, pointing to Jesus? We live in a day today where I think probably mixed and mingled with good intentions and pride, we want to be Christ for sweet people. We want to be the one to tell people what they need to do, how they need to live, how they need to think, what you should be doing. We want to tell families how they should be organizing their families. We want to tell, tell uh, parents how they should be doing things. We want to tell churches how they should be doing things. We want to tell our workplaces how they should be doing things. It all belongs to Christ, and you and I are not Christ. John knew that. He's simply a voice that says, look to Christ. He is everything. 
Do we try to be the Christ? Or do we understand, I'm just a voice. And I point to Christ, and then I do what my role is. I pray for the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Giving eyes to see. I ask because it's a struggle for us. For all of us. We are not by nature humble like John the Baptist. And he's not by nature humble. It's God's grace in his life. As a pastor, my great desire, what at times frustrates me, not, not in a negative way, but just it, 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 you look back on it, is to see just maturity in Christ, growing in Christ, loving for Christ. And so everything we do is catered around Christ, 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 Christ. Songs we sing, prayer meetings, pre- sermons we preach, it's, just, it's all Christ. And I make no apologies about it whatsoever. None whatsoever. And there's a part of me that wants to be Christ. And you probably know this when you think about your children or grandchildren or people you long for. You just want to be Christ and you just want to do everything in your power to make it happen. And you can't. I can't. Our job is to be the voice and point to Christ and then just pray for the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. If He does, we give Him the glory. If He doesn't, we give Him the glory. His ways are not our ways. But for us, our great desire is what we see in John the Baptist, that Christ would be all. We're not the Christ. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon our tricks, our gimmicks, our wisdom, our methods. I promise you, Christ is enough. If an eye is given eyes to see by faith the beauty of Christ, he's enough. Our job is to be the voice, as John the Baptist was. God is holy. His standard is established. He demands perfection. You and I are not perfect. We're in big trouble with this God. Repent. And behold the Christ. Behold the Messiah. Look to Him. And oh God, I pray you'd give this one eyes to see. I'm not the Christ. Christ is. He's enough. I'm a voice. Do we know who we are not? It's not enough to know up here. It's got to be a humility. A humility that Christ is all. And he is enough. We are not the eternal life-giving, light-giving word who is one with the Father. We, like John, are the voice so that the Father get, so that Christ gets all the glory. So that was the first line of questioning. Who are you? That leads to the second line of questioning. It's about his authority. Verse 25. They asked him then, why are you baptizing? You're, you're, not, you're not the Christ. You're not Moses. You're not Elijah. You're the voice of the Christ who's coming. Then why are you baptizing? if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. What irks them is 
Not that John was baptizing. That was not the problem. The problem was who he was baptizing. You see, in John's day in the first century, baptism was a normal thing. The Jews, the Pharisees, baptized. But here's where things get interesting. The Jews, the Pharisees, they baptized who? The Gentiles. In order for a Gentile to be clean, there was a ceremony of baptism that had to, uh, to take place for an unclean, filthy Gentile to be clean. Here's the problem with John the Baptist. Who is he baptizing? Jews, that's their problem. John, why are you baptizing? We're the covenant people of God. Don't you know your Bible? Go all the way back. Go all the way back to Egypt. Go all the way back to our father Abraham, God's declaration to him. We are his covenant people. Why are you baptizing us? You see the the line of difficulty there. And John's answer is, he's, we're going to see it more clearly as we follow John's ministry and coming, but John's answer is going to be, and you're going to understand why the Jews hated Jesus and John with this one, because you're no better than the Gentiles. Oh, you've got a title of God's covenant people. Paul is going to say in Romans, God can raise up a covenant people out of stones. There's nothing special about you. I'm baptizing because you are every bit as bad as the Gentiles. You Jews need to repent of your sins as much as the Gentiles do. Because your hope is here. To the Pharisees, that's offensive. That's horrifying. How dare you? Who do you think you are, John? Questioning my religion? Questioning my faithfulness? Questioning my heart? Questioning my, I'm in the temple every Lord's Day. I'm in the worship. I've memorized the word. How dare you? We talked about this last week. Beloved, let me just throw it out there. Why are the Pharisees in the Bible? Because they are a picture of the church. That is not me. That's not me guessing. That has been throughout church history. The understanding of the Pharisees is that they exist to reveal even in the church of Jesus Christ. You can be all religious and worshipful and still... It's nothing but lip service. John's gospel is written not just so the unbeliever would believe, but for those of us who think we're believers would believe and know. So how does John answer? Does he defend his authority? Does he defend, why are you baptizing? Does he defend himself? Does he even focus on himself? Look at verse 26. John answered them. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What does he do? You're still focusing upon me, Pharisees. And his response turns every head, turns every neck, turns every eye, turns every ear to Christ. And he says, why do I, look at me, I'm baptizing with water. Don't be concerned about that. Among you stands one you don't know, even one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John has no desire to defend himself. No need to stand on his own authority. No desire to make himself great. No desire to draw attention to himself. He's meek, he's humble, and his answer 
pushes all eyes upon the one he's come to prepare the way for. And when he says in verse 26, I baptize with water, I think this is good for us as good Baptists to be reminded of. John is simply saying, you're asking me about, I baptize with water. It's it's symbolic. (laughs) This is not what you need to be worried about. This is symbolic of one greater than I who comes and baptizes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to be concerned about. That's what you need to know. Not water baptism. It's symbolic. Symbolic of what? The work of Christ upon a soul. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the Spirit of God washing a soul in regeneration, taking out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh. Pharisees, you came asking me about baptism, a petty question about the ritual of baptism. Here's the real issue. You don't recognize there's one standing in your midst. He's here. He's here, and you are wanting to have a petty discussion with me about water baptism. And isn't that true? It's even in our own day today, when we engage with family and friends. I see this all the time. You probably do too. A voice in the wilderness turning eyes to Jesus Christ, and inevitably, they want to turn attention to some non-essential secondary petty issue. And I say petty, it's important to them. Well, what about dinosaurs in Scripture? You know, what, 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 what do you think about that? Or, or, or my loved one in heaven, uh, can I talk to them? Can I pray to them? The answer is no, if, if you need help with that one. They want to focus on non-essentials. Well, listen, I hear what you're talking about religion, but listen... I've had this experience in church. I grew up in church. It was a bad experience, bad people, blah, 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 blah. Didn't do things my way, blah, blah, blah. Did this to my parents, did this to my grandparents, this, that, and the other. And exactly what John the Baptist is doing here has to be what a faithful witness of Christ does. Says, the point is look to Jesus. Your great need is Jesus. You're trying to deflect in all these other things. And please don't hear me saying they're unimportant discussions to have. But I have seen countless times of just over and over cycles of talking and dialogue and discussion, which can be helpful, but at the same time, never, ever, 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 ever getting to God is holy. He demands perfection. You've not been perfect. Repent. Run to this Christ and then pray for the Lord to do what only he can do. You cannot argue somebody into a relationship with Christ. Conversion is the work of God, not your, um, not your eloquent explanation of apologetics. or It's the work of the Spirit of God. He's the one who comes after me. That's what you need to be focused upon. The one who's the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. What's John the Baptist's entire focus in this, these, the line of questioning? It's Jesus Christ. 
He wants them to see the greatness of Christ. He wants the Pharisees to understand your religious great. It's not enough. Woe is you, cursed are you, apart from this one. He wants them to understand, though he's the hottest thing in Judea, John the Baptist is. He's nothing compared to Christ. In John's day, a student would do menial tasks for their teacher in order to earn income in order to, you know, as they were studying under a teacher. But you had to draw a line somewhere, and it's well documented. Nobody wanted to untie their teacher's shoes. Sandals in that day, the rocky, it, it was nasty, it was messy. It was labor that only in that day a slave would do, the lowest of the low. And yet John here uses that framework. Bear with it. He uses that framework. And he says, there's one here I'm not even worthy to do that to. He is so great. I am so nothing in comparison to him. Could John speak of himself any lower than he did there when he said, whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie? There's nothing lower he really could have gone to. And I think of the Apostle Paul when he says to the saints, He's the lowest of the apostles, the least of all the saints, the chief of all sinners. That's, that's kind of what John is getting at here. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Christ is all. What an attitude. To be so fixed on making others look to Jesus. That in any and all circumstances, in all discussions, in all dialogues, I'm a voice to point to Jesus. And it may make no sense to that person. And in darkness, it won't. But my job is to point to Jesus and then pray for God to do what only He can do. To be so full of the Holy Spirit that you see your whole purpose in waking up each morning. When you go to work. When you're having conversations with friends and family. when you're Whatever you're doing. Your whole purpose for existing is to be a voice to glorify Christ. To be so enamored with Jesus in your own soul. Not like John here. This wasn't rehearsed. He didn't take a class on deflecting questions to Christ. This was the overflow of his love for Jesus. Over and over, who are you? I'm not Jesus. He's the one you need to be worried about. Why do you baptize? I'll just baptize with water. You need to worry about Jesus who comes and baptizes with the Holy. He's the one you need to be focused upon. I'm not worthy to untie his. He didn't take a class on that. Why is he living like this? Because in his soul, in his soul, he is enamored with Jesus. He has a relationship with Jesus. A closeness to Jesus. And for him, Christ is not a tagline. Christ is all. John wasn't concerned about his identity. John wasn't concerned about his authority. He didn't want to dabble in discussion about all these. He just, his, it's Christ. Bearing witness to Christ. Let me just ask you as we close. What place of prominence does Christ have in your soul? 
in your witness. When you think about the things you most think about and the things you most speak about, where is Christ in that? Again, I'm hesitant to use the word rank because we're going to go back to that first commandment. Jesus doesn't accept being in the top three. He doesn't even accept being number one among three. He demands what? Alone. I'm in a category all by myself. Is Christ precious to you, preeminent to you like this? And if not, what is preeminent? Start there. That's where I have to begin. Start there. Identify it. Name it. Categorize it as an idol, even if it's a good thing. Categorize it as an idol and repent of it. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see and know Christ as John the Apostle and John the Baptist knew him. Ask him to give you eyes to see. And beloved, it's right here. It's all right here. How is it between you and your Bibles? I promise you there will be a correlation between your love for Jesus and your devotion to, your, to the Word of Christ. If you find it to be cold, one of two things. You haven't touched your Bible recently, or number two, you have, and you're only reading it like an unbeliever, meaning you're reading the pages, but you're not seeking the Spirit of God. Show me Christ. Show me Christ. And I'm not saying you, there's a, there's a formula that tomorrow you pray that prayer. I'm saying it is a pattern of day after day after day that hunger and thirst and delight and enamorment with Christ, enamorment with Christ grows. I'll say this with all respect. I'm nothing. You're nothing. Your stuff is nothing. Christ is all. Oh, how easy to give lip service to that this morning. For John, it's not lip service. How's your heart? How's mine? The questioning of John and the exaltation of Christ. What today will be an opportunity for you to exalt Christ? Is your heart there? Heed the words of the Apostle John this morning. We are Pharisees by nature. Let that hurt your feelings. I included myself in that. Every one of us are by nature Pharisees. We are quick to give lip service, but our hearts are far. Heed the words of the Apostle. Look to Christ. Ask for eyes to see. Repent and turn to Him.